Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Ryan Grimm. Welcome to Deconstructed. Today, we're talking about the ongoing conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Just two years ago, the two countries were engaged in a 44-day war, which sort of ended in late 2020 after the Russians brokered a deal between them. A breakthrough on the breakaway region's conflict after 10 hours of talks in Moscow. The Russian foreign minister announced that Armenia and Azerbaijan had agreed to halt fighting in Nagorno-Karabakh. The deal comes after six weeks of relentless fighting. It was first announced in a Facebook post by Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan. Within minutes, confirmation came from Azerbaijan and Moscow. But the struggle between the two countries is heating up again, and it reached a new stage on December 12th, when there was news of a blockade of a major highway. The road connects Armenia with the contested region of Nagorno-Karabakh. The blockade was purportedly being organized by environmental activists opposing mining projects in the region. Now, that blockade is still going on today, and more than 100,000 people are cut off from the rest of the world living in a desperate situation that is getting almost no attention. And if you think it's a little odd that Azerbaijan, an oil-rich autocracy, is somehow allowing its own version of the Sunrise Movement to blockade a city indefinitely, well, your skepticism is well-placed. They're not environmentalists. We'll untangle this mystery with two freelance journalists who cover the area, Joshua Kusera, who's based in Georgia, and also Lilette Shavardin, who is from the disputed Nagorno-Karabakh region, which is known in Armenian as Artsakh. Joshua, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. And Lilith, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me too. And so, Josh, let me start with you. Um, first of all, eco-activists? Azerbaijan is a pretty uh, authoritarian country. It's not the kind of place where I think of civil disobedience just popping off uh, and activists being allowed to blockade highways against the interests of the state for uh, an indefinite amount of time. Yeah, this is not a claim that should be taken at all seriously. Um, the the people, there's been good investigations done about the fact that these uh, are not uh, legitimate environmental activists. It's a pretty clearly... Uh, government organized thing. The government, you know, has been officially giving them support, providing tents and food and so on. And so it's it's a very clearly government sponsored uh, effort. And so why would they why would they block this highway? Like, why would the government want this highway blocked? Well, I think this has to be seen in the context of the ongoing efforts by the Azerbaijani government to get more concessions out of Armenia um, after the war in 2020 between the two sides, uh, which Azerbaijan won, they signed a ceasefire agreement. And then ever since that point, uh, they've been talking about signing a, a peace agreement that would provide some kind of more or less final resolution to the conflict. Um, and, and since Azerbaijan won that war, they've had kind of every advantage and you see them pushing in a lot of different directions. There have been military, small military offensives and incursions, um, both in the territory that they don't uh, yet control in Karabakh and in Armenia itself. Um, they've been kind of rhetorical 
uh, offensives. They've been uh, talking about the history of, of Armenia and that it was uh, historic Azerbaijani lands and, and so on. And so this is kind of multi-pronged um, offensive aimed at getting uh, more concessions from the Armenians. And I think this is an escalation of that tactic uh, and, and probably the most serious one so far, given that it has this uh, strong impact on the civilians inside of uh, Karabakh. And, and Lila, you've been speaking with a lot of people in there. What's, what, what is it like living for more than a month just cut off from the rest of the world? What are conditions like inside, the, inside this area? The main issue people are facing is uh, the humanitarian crisis because uh, obviously there is no import of goods. Uh, before the blockade, uh, around 12,000 tons of uh, vital supplies and necessities were being imported to Karabakh from Armenia, and now uh, any kinds of import are stopped. Only the ICRC and the Russian peacekeepers have mandates to enter the territory, so they uh, bring some foods, uh, fruits, vegetables for pregnant, pregnant women, for example. The ICRC brings uh, medication, but uh, obviously it's not enough for a population of over 100,000 people. So uh, the uh, government introduced a coupon system to the population and they are getting coupons to purchase very um, basic necessities like uh, buckwheat, rice, eggs, uh, only, uh, have, only if they have coupons. Uh, there is lack of medication in pharmacies, lack of food uh, in supermarkets, obviously. Uh, also, uh, there are shortages of electricity because uh, the electricity cable has been cut off uh, on the territory that's now controlled by Azerbaijan. So people have rolling blackouts. Um, uh, they do not have an electricity for four hours every day. And people say that so the timing will increase as uh, the supplies in the local power plants will be over. And probably it's possible that uh, sometime later, if the blockade continues, people will have no electricity at all. Also, uh, there was a gas shortage from the very beginning of the blockade, though it was prevented due to international pressure after three days. But two days ago, Azerbaijan again cut off the gas supply. So people now have no gas and they have no electricity for uh, four hours every day. What's the weather like now? And how's, how, like, it's dead of, dead of winter. How, how, how brutal is it? Well, at the beginning, there was snowing. It was colder than now. Now, fortunately, it's getting warmer because uh, winter is not very cold in Karabakh. So uh, and the cold is not a very big issue, but uh, the weather can change any time because uh, also it already snowed a few days ago. Um, so, yeah. And also, uh, uh, gas is uh, being heated with gas. Uh, water is being heated with gas. So uh, as long as people do not have gas, they won't have also uh, hot water. And in order to kind of set the, the context for some of this conflict, I wanted to read the top of, of a Washington Post uh, article that ran back in October of, of 1998, uh, which, you know, coming in the period after the collapse of the Soviet Union, after the, the, the first war between Armenia um, and Azerbaijan, but before a lot of the kind of oil development kind of took off. And so it, it's this fascinating scene. It's it basically in, in, in the White House. The article begins, uh, the message that Amoco Corporation's T. Don Stacey took to a small political gathering on the morning of August 6, 1996, seemed hopelessly obscure compared with the usual concerns of the lobbyists and business tycoons assembled at the White House. 
Stacy, who directed Eurasian operations for the Chicago-based oil company, was incensed at what he considered misguided U.S. policies toward a remote Central Asian country on the western shore of the Caspian Sea, hardly a preoccupation of, for example, New York Yankees owner George Steinbrenner, who was on hand for that meeting. But as Stacy pressed his points on the strategic importance of Azerbaijan's oil deposits, one listener was riveted. Without waiting for Stacy to finish, President Bill Clinton jumped in to clarify several geopolitical points, then strode to a blackboard and drew a remarkably accurate map of the Caspian region. Before the meeting ended, Amoco, the largest U.S. investor in Azerbaijan's oil boom, had what it wanted, a promise from Clinton to invite the Azerbaijani president to Washington. Six months later, the company, which traditionally donated heavily to the Republicans, contributed $50,000 to the Democratic Party. In August 1997, Clinton received President Haider Aliyev with full honors, witnessed the signing of a new Amoco oil exploration deal, and promised to lobby Congress to lift U.S. Ec- economic sanctions on Azerbaijan. And later, later in the article... Uh, a guy, uh, his son, uh, Il- Ilham Aliyev, comes up in the article, at the time vice president of Azerbaijan's state oil company. And his quote in the article is, we used oil for our major goal to become a real country. So you've got Azerbaijan at this point trying to break away you know, from the orbit of, of Russia. And in order to do so, trying to link up with the West so that it would have some kind of some, some geopolitical uh, independence. The United States policymakers weren't interested, so they went through uh, they went through U.S. oil companies to try to make them their friends and their allies in Washington, uh, which seems which seems to have worked. But what so over the last twenty five years, um, how how has how has this unfolded? Like has it been you know has Azerbaijan successfully um, allied itself with the United States or what? Um, and how does that play into this this current conflict, Josh? Well, I'd say over the last 25 years, it's been a little bit of a kind of uh, up and down um, relationship between Azerbaijan and the West, especially vis-a-vis energy. I think there were in the 90s and the early 2000s, there were um, huge expectations from the West about how much uh, energy there might be in the Caspian Sea. And I I don't have it off the top of my head, but Dick, there's a famous quote from Dick Cheney um, about uh, the, the vast potential of the, the Caspian oil and gas. Um, that then, in, in those years after that, it um, the, the new estimates came out, and it's not it's not a game changer uh, really to to anybody. Um, they do. Yeah, the, the the Post article mentioned that there was a vocal minority saying that. These are wild overestimates. Right. Well, be that careful. vocal minority turned out to be right. <laughs> um, but then now yes. what you see, then the situation has changed actually this year or last year uh, as a result of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and um, sanctions on Russia, Russia cutting off gas to Europe um, in response. And so Europe is a bit desperate for substitutes. They were quite dependent on Russian natural gas. And so... In the efforts to try to find substitutes for that, they've come across um, Azerbaijan, and, and the you know the the amount that they're getting extra from Azerbaijan is really negligible. I mean, compared to what they lost from Russia, it's I don't have the numbers uh, in front of me, but you can find them. It's it's really a very small uh, thing, a drop in the bucket, um, but it's something. And so, last uh, summer, uh, the EU and Azerbaijan signed a deal to. Um, increase uh, European purchases of, of Azerbaijani gas. Uh, and I do think that that has some 
effect on the, the European um, uh, policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, this part of the world. In general, though, I'd say that, like, for one, the the oil and gas, you know, expectations that we had 20, 25 years ago have not been borne out. Secondly, Azerbaijan has been pretty skillful at balancing its geopolitical uh, interests in the West and in Russia. And they're constantly going back and forth um, and, and on this kind of balancing act, which for the most part they've been good at. Uh, in the post-Soviet world, there's a handful of states and mainly oil and gas rich states that have been able to manage this um, balancing act. And you can kind of see that they turn out somewhat better than the countries that either stick with Russia fully or go to the West fully. Uh, and so I think that's what, that's kind of the geopolitical story of Azerbaijan is that they've been uh, balancing this and still to the, you know, and even now, now they're, they're important uh, to Europe as a gas supplier. They still maintain more or less um, good relations with Russia as well. And, and so Lilith, after, uh, toward the end of 2020, uh, a, a new war is is launched that lasted what I think forty four days, in which um, Azerbaijan kind of. Uh, well, you you, t you tell me. Um, so what ha what happened in uh, twenty twenty? How how did we how did we get into another war that that the world mostly ignored? Like I think if you, if you did a survey of the American public and asked them if there had been a war in twenty twenty between Azerbaijan and Armenia, I think they would people would just have to just wildly guess at that answer. Well, I think. Um... Before the war, there were there were military clashes uh, at the border with Armenia, and uh, before that, uh, Aliyev's reputation uh, started to dropping. So, uh, the most popular like interpretation of uh, why the war started is that Aliyev needed it to uh, keep uh, save his reputation. So, and uh, the public, the Azerbaijani public, needed to see uh, the territories back. That's why uh, possibly uh, Azerbaijan lodged the war. Uh, to save his reputation and um, maybe um, like stay uh, in power. Mm -hmm. What what was the what was the effect on the ground? Well, we had a lot of uh, losses, not only territorial. Armenians uh, lost more than five thousand lives. Many people were displaced. Officially, over tw uh, over forty thousand from Nagorno-Karabakh. Some of them stayed in Karabakh in other in territories that are now uh, controlled by Armenians. Uh, some moved to Armenia and other moved to abroad, mostly to Russia because um, it's the easiest uh, option. Um, we had some uh, casualties, we had civilian losses, but everything has been restored shortly after the war. Uh, but uh, uh, what uh, Armenia suffered the most from uh, human lives and the military, uh, the army is uh, now uh, basically destroyed. Uh, Karabakh, uh, there's no Armenian army in Karabakh uh, anymore. Uh, we have a very weak uh, army in Karabakh, which will be unable to protect itself in case uh, Azerbaijan attacks again. And uh, in case of uh, human, in case of people, uh, after the war, some uh, people also left the territories. Those who still had their homes, they left, and now uh, they have less and less motivation to stay in their homes because Azerbaijan is depriving, depriving them of uh, very basic human conditions like having warm water or uh, having electricity. Uh, so yeah, people are suffering a lot. What's the relationship between that and this, this ongoing blockade? Well, I think uh, people uh, were ex expecting that uh, 
the situation will escalate again because uh, after the war, Aliyev start, started claiming that they will take the territories back, they will take control uh, of the corridor, and if they control of the corridor, uh, uh, it means that Armenians uh, will uh, have to leave the territory very quickly because uh, nobody will tolerate Azerbaijanis standing on the road and checking their documents and controlling who enters Karabakh or leaves Karabakh. So I think it's what it was expected, uh, especially after the first blockade. It happened a few days uh, before the second blockade. Uh, the environmentalists again blocked the corridor uh, for a few hours, and uh, it was pretty obvious that it will be continued, and it will happen again. So Josh, how do, how does this how is this connected to the first Armenian Azerbaijan war back in the early nineties and and the and the fallout there? Well, so. Yeah, so the, the first war ended in 1994 with an Armenian victory. And so Armenia controlled uh, both Nagorno-Karabakh and um, a lot of territory surrounding uh, Karabakh as well. Uh, and as a result, 600,000 Azerbaijanis were displaced uh, from that. Uh, Azerbaijan had as uh, one of the highest, if not the highest, population of uh, IDPs, internally displaced people per capita, almost 10% of the population uh, was displaced as a result of that war. And so then after... Are 19- they trying to move some of those back in? I mean, is that... In theory. That and the, the- yeah, that's, the, that's, that's part of the, the idea. I mean, it's going quite slowly. Um, it's hard to tell why. Partially, it's because there turns out to be a lot of landmines on this territory, um, partially um, perhaps because um, of bureaucratic slowness or whatever. Uh, but yes, that's certainly the goal. Um, uh, is to allow these people to move back to their homes. Uh, so after 1994, you had kind of uh, peace talks uh, that started out somewhat promisingly and that kind of over the years stagnated and Azerbaijan felt like it, um, there was like very little chance to regain the territory uh, that it lost in that um, first war through peaceful means, through diplomatic means. Um, in 2018, you had the, the um, arrival of a new government in Armenia, um, led by Nikol Pashinyan, who was this kind of, he wasn't pro-Western exactly, but he looked like somebody who could be pro-Western, and he had like a little bit of a more uh, liberal uh, outlook than uh, the previous government had. He was not connected to the war like the, the previous uh, Armenian leadership was, and I think this raised expectations um, that maybe maybe this is the guy who could f- make a deal with with Azerbaijan, uh, but then over time that um, those hopes were dashed as well. Uh, I think Lilith is right as well. This is a um, there was a, a public uh, there was a great public kind of dissatisfaction over twenty five years. Why are we still um, you know? displaced from our territory? Why do we still not have control over ter- our territory? Uh, there was a huge protest. You mentioned protests, and you're right that they're, they are not typically allowed in, uh, in Azerbaijan. There was a huge protest uh, in July, I believe, uh, the summer before the, the big 2020 war, uh, for people basically demanding um, that they, they take back this uh, territory. Uh, so I think there's a lot of different... Um, a lot of different elements that went into this. And Lilith, how do uh, how do Armenians think about their 
their place in the, in the world right now? When they, when they look around, who do they see as as allies? Who are they hoping are going to help? What like what is Russia's role here? What is the United States' role here? What is what is Iran's role, or is is Armenia just kind of stuck in the middle of this? Uh, well, um, the role of Russia uh, has changed uh, since the Ukraine war started because Armenians are seeing that the Ru- Russia and its uh, uh, CSTO is not helping Armenia at, at all. And uh, after uh, Pashinyan came to power, as Joshua already mentioned, uh, people changed their political views, and uh, now uh, we ha- we're having more hopes with uh, the West, with Europe, with the U.S., and even with Iran rather than Russia. And also there were uh, huge protests in Yerevan uh, to stop, uh, 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 to get out of the CSTO, the Russia-led uh, security uh, bloc. Uh, so especially after the blockade started, uh, Russia's role is dropping again because... Uh, the only uh, country that has physical presence in the region is Russia, not only in Karabakh, also in Armenia, but Russia couldn't prevent uh, the continuation of the blockade and it didn't intervene in the clashes that uh, happened in the border uh, of Armenia and Azerbaijan in September. So uh, people are prone to uh, uh, being allies with the West, with Europe, uh, US rather than Russia. but. Uh, obviously, Russia is not going to leave the region yet. Uh, Armenia is still very much dependent on Russia because Russia has a uh, military base in Armenia and a uh, peacekeeping contingent in Karabakh. So it's not easy yet, but uh, people like are changing their po- political perspectives and they are seeing that Russia is actually not helping Armenia at all. And wh- what are you hearing from your friends and family who are behind the blockade? What's their, what's their hope uh, for how or their sense of how or when this ever ends or is there no do they feel like there's no going back to before uh, well uh, many people are accusing russia now because uh, again russia has uh, is physically present in the territory so the only country that can uh, stop the blockade and uh, make azeris go back to their territories from the road is uh, russia but russia is not doing that so they think that maybe uh, this blockade is uh, agreed between uh, russia and azerbaijan uh, and uh, uh, again, uh, even in Karabakh, Russia's role, uh, um, people are dissatisfied with Russia. They uh, they see that the blockade seems to be continuing and it won't uh, end very soon. But uh, there is some more international pressure from the European Union, from America. So they're having some uh, hopes uh, with uh, the West rather than with Russia. And Josh, what's what's your sense of the of the geopolitics here? Why is why is Russia allowing this to to go on? Well, because of Ukraine, they just don't have the kind of bandwidth at this point to manage this crisis uh, in the Caucasus. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think that they. But how hard how hard would it be to sweep a hundred people off a highway? Yeah, I mean, I think exactly. I think that that's a big question. Um, I think that they are afraid. That um, you know that this is being filmed twenty four seven by Azerbaijani TV channels. Um, that it would you know, obviously Russian security forces aren't uh, averse to you know, <laughs> breaking Not up protests. Yeah. Uh, but but still, it's like super 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 sensitive uh, in the Caucasus if you have Russian you know soldiers kind of manhandling in any way these Azerbaijani. Uh, figures. It's 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 a mysterious question, or it's it's a mystery. Like I don't know quite why. Um, 
I think it's more, it's not that the peacekeepers themselves are incapable. It's that somehow, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm honestly at a loss. It's one of the big questions about all of this. Right. And what, what, well, what's Russia getting out of siding with Azerbaijan in this situation? Well, I, don't th- I also think they're not siding with Azerbaijan. They're not happy with what's going on. I think that they have been proven really impotent. Uh, you know, A, they were been proven pretty impotent in Ukraine, but then this is only adding to that, that this is a much simpler task, as you, as you point out, uh, and they are not managing uh, to, to deal with it. So, and, and you can see in the, Russia, in the Azerbaijani media coverage, they love poking uh, at Russia and, and anything they do that humiliates Russia, they're enjoying it. Um, so they are definitely not getting anything out of this. Um, I think they're maybe just, they seem like maybe they're hoping the problem goes away or they're sticking their head in the sand or um, it's, or they're just kind of washing their hands of the situation and deciding that they don't have enough, um, they have enough other problems in the world that maybe they don't, uh, they're not going to prioritize the caucuses. And Lilith, are there any ongoing, actually effective relief efforts that are able to get in? Like if people are listening and want to do anything, is this something, is there anything to be done? Or is this just the people have to just work out the geopolitics of this and, and resolve the crisis? There are negotiations going between authorities of Karabakh and Azerbaijan, uh, informal uh, negotiations. Uh, but uh, yesterday or the day before it was announced that the negotiations didn't bring any result. So uh, and also Azerbaijan refuses uh, to uh, have negotiations with international representatives uh, and with Karabakh authorities, and uh, the only thing that Karabakh people could do is uh, uh, open the roads through negotiations. But obviously Azerbaijan is uh, objecting to it, and they would not agree on it. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having us. Thank you too. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss and now we're joined by allison tamizian who's an armenian american activist and journalist who has previously worked in war zones in syria and elsewhere and is based in armenia allison thanks for being here thank you for having me you were telling me that you were almost caught inside the city can you tell how this blockade kick off and where were you when it when it started So I was actually in the capital, Stepanakert, driving to Yerevan. Suddenly there was a roadblock or there was just a line of cars when we were driving under the city of Shushi, which is occupied by Azerbaijan and Turkey. And we were kept back and I walked up to see what was going on. And, you know, there was a group of men 
you know, wearing civilian clothing. But for the audience who have never been there, it's a military zone. Today, the areas that have been seized in 2020 are a military zone. No one moves there. I mean, Azerbaijan is a tightly controlled dictatorship run by a family. And nothing moves in those areas that have been seized without official permission. So behind these guys, you see special forces. Basically, they put civilians out in front, and now they have civilians uh, posing, or not civilians, actually, a lot of them have been identified as Azri military. They're posing uh, as activists, but this is in order to be able to do a blockade without any intervention because the peacekeeping force does not have a mandate to use force. If they use force against quote-unquote demonstrators, we all know what the headlines will be, especially that the peacekeeping force is Russian. So it's very clever. So I was caught behind that roadblock that was about three hours. I saw some of the, they're they're claiming to be eco-activists or something. The idea that this country, which has sold itself to BP, and which is a tightly controlled autocracy where you do not have any protests without official permission, the idea that they suddenly have an eco-activist movement is funny. They're veneer so that when this story gets picked up, the headline says eco-activists, so that the Russian peacekeepers cannot remove them by force because they do not have that mandate. And so... You have 120,000 or so some people who are kind of cut off from the from the outside world. What is it like in in there? Like I, I I've seen posts on social media saying that you know insulin is running low, that food is now uh, getting rationed, that you know that energy is uh, touch and go. So what happens if a delivery of insulin tries to get into the city? The eco, the alleged eco activists are kind of in the street and blocking it. Like what? How does how is this ac- actually playing out on the ground? This blockade is on the road which connects Armenia to Artsakh. Uh, so basically, it was a corridor that was agreed when the ceasefire announcement was done in November of 2020. So this is a very vulnerable road, and it's protected only by Russian peacekeepers. But there are points where you have the Azri forces sometimes you see the Turkish flag on the high ground. So it's extremely vulnerable. And this is one of those points where the Azeris are on the high ground. And basically, they can send trucks of uh, forces to be hovering right over the road on which Armenians pass and the Russian peacekeepers are tasked with guarding. For example, if they wanted to bring in insulin today, it will come through the Red Cross. The Red Cross is the only international organization, to my knowledge, that is working in uh, Stepanakert, in Artsakh. But I mean, that just shows <laughs> how dire the situation is. I mean, I covered the sieges in Syria for years. You know, I know what it means when the Red Cross has to get involved and be transporting POWs and medicine. I mean, this is... This is dire. This is war. So what is the goal here? And how, how does this end? Is there some type of capitulation that Azerbaijan is hoping Armenia will make, at which point the, the eco-activists move away? Or is this just 
kind of a new status quo that, that they're just going to strangle the area? Like what I, I, I'm genuinely trying to figure out what the what the play is here. So I, I hope we can stop calling them eco activists. I think Azari forces is is perfectly fine. Well, the goal here is to not only um, make life unviable in Artsakh, but the next step of the program is to take southern Armenia, an area which Azeri President Aliyev and Erdogan of Turkey refer to as Zengazur. I mean, after the war in 2020, they claimed Yerevan, the capital of Armenia. They're calling it their historic lands. The big picture is they would, Aliyev has openly said that Armenia is not worthy of being a colony. They do not want a sovereign Armenia. They have demanded demilitarization of Armenia. So this doesn't end here. Artsakh is always called the shield of Armenia because it's been shielding Armenia from what's coming next, what they would like to implement next, which is to seize southern Armenia, which would grant a corridor between Turkey to Azerbaijan, to the, the Central Asia and all of these, you know, republics that Turkey would like to have more influence over than, say, Russia uh, or any other regional power. And the reason why I would say, you know, Western governments are complicit, are, are not pushing back against this, is because this would also cut off Iran. This would cut Iran from Armenia and hence to the Black Sea and their most secure connection to onto Russia and Europe. So there's a lot of parties, not to say everyone is interested in Armenians being ethnically cleansed from the area, but they're not going to get in the way. That would also include Israel, which is very heavily involved in Azerbaijan's military, you can say. They provided drones during the war. If they're going to actually do a major uh, attack on the Iranian nuclear program, it's expected, I believe, according to uh, you know, Reuters report from a decade ago, that they would at least refuel uh, in Azerbaijan. Well, Allison, thank, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for covering it. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Jose Olivares. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show is mixed by William Stanton. Theme music was composed by... Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is the Intercept's editor in chief, and I'm Ryan Grimm, DC bureau chief of the Intercept. To support this podcast and the rest of the work of the Intercept, go to theintercept.com/give. Your donation no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please go and leave us a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much, and see you soon.